Today, we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're new here with us, uh, we are working through 1 Peter, and today we are at the very beginning of chapter 4, so if you have a Bible, turn there. If not, the verses will be on the screen. Uh, I would like to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to jump in. Lord God, thank you for this time and this place. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity yet again to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I pray for us. I pray, Lord, for those uh, that are maybe new with us, those that are uh, tuning in as guests. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, especially if if we don't know you very well, especially if there's something that really needs to be said in our lives, Lord, would you give us ears to hear it? Lord, we'd be open to what it is you have to say. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move amongst us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to set the stage for our passage this morning. And to do that, I would like to uh, give you a movie review, because I tend to like to do that. And uh, I saw a new movie, which it does apply. I'm not just talking about it for the sake of it. Um, The movie that I'm talking about is Dune, the new Dune. Okay, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. I'm going to tell you the whole plot. No, I'm not. Um, This is based on the science fiction books by Frank Herbert. It's been made a few different times. Uh, I liked this movie. Uh, You may not like it, though, if, you know, you don't like seeing people incinerated, or spaceships explode, or giant sandworms. All of those things contained within this movie. You may not like it, but I liked it uh, because of the characters. And I want to tell you about one scene at the beginning of the movie uh, about the main character. His name is Paul. Uh, here's, the, here's the movie poster. Paul is in the middle. You can tell a very young, brooding kind of young man. He is uh, on the good guy's side, the house of Atreides. Uh, the bad guys in the movie is a house of Harkonnen. Okay? You know they're bad because the lighting in their planet is really dark and uh, they, they tend to kill people. So um, in the, early on in the movie, I'm not going to ruin the movie, but early on there's a scene where Paul is being trained for combat. Right? His, his father is kind of leader of the tribe, so he's being trained for combat by their weapons expert. This is a regular thing that happens. And so he comes in the room and uh, you can tell he's just not in the mood. In fact, that's what he says. Okay? He says, look, I'm not in the mood. Now, the weapons expert guy, he's, he's already, like, attacking him. They have these cool force fields, by the way, around their body. It's really cool. So, so he's, like, attacking him with these, you know, space swords and everything. And Paul is saying, look, I'm just, do we have to spar today? I'm not in the mood. And the weapons expert, this battle-hardened soldier, says, what do you mean not in the mood? He says, it's not about mood. It's not about feeling. He said, do you know who we're going to be battling against? The Harkonnens, do you, they're brutal. I've, I've fought against them. They have no mercy. You have to always be ready. You have to always be in the mood. So he keeps battling and battling. And what you realize is that this training process, it's, it's partly about Paul's body, that he would be able to fight, but it's even more about his mind, that he would have a battle mindset. And the reason I thought of that is because that is exactly what Peter is talking about here at the beginning of chapter four. He's talking about the importance of having the right mindset. Now, if you remember, this whole letter, 1 Peter, is about him equipping and encouraging the church to be faithful in a hostile world. And part of that is thinking in the right way. Thinking like Jesus so that we might follow in his ways. So you're going to see this uh, in the very first verse. We're going to take this passage a verse at a time. So here's verse 1. You'll see right away the importance of, of how we think. Here's how it begins. Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
So you can see even the, the military kind of language there that Peter uses. He's saying we need to think in a certain way, think like a soldier, to arm ourselves. But notice the interesting thing is that the way of thinking that he's talking about uh, isn't about strategy or grit or like a will to fight. He says it's all about the readiness to suffer, which seems a bit odd. I mean, if you think about arming yourself, commanders don't usually train their soldiers to have, to have a suffering mindset because suffering usually means weakness. It means defeat. But of course, the gospel of Jesus is different. We've already seen, we saw last week, that the suffering of Jesus on the cross meant victory and triumph. Through his suffering, all our enemies were defeated. And so what Peter is doing here is to call us to the same way of thinking and the same way of living. And you can see the, the way of living in the last part of, of the verse. Here it is again. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now this doesn't mean that if we suffer, we are going to stop sinning. What it means is that if we think like Jesus, if we begin to think in this certain way, then we will embark on a new way of living. Um, there's a biblical commentator named Thomas Schreiner. And he kind of, I think, encapsulates this idea that the way our thinking is connected to our living and in terms of the suffering here. So I'm just going to put this quote from him on the screen. He says this, The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. Different. You see that the connection between a willingness to suffer, a, a different mindset, the mindset of Christ, and that that leads to a new way of living. That's really what Peter is calling us to. This new way of life rooted in a new way of thinking. And what he does for the rest of the passage is highlight kind of three aspects of this new way of thinking and living in the, in the pattern of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at. Three, three points, three things that he highlights. Here's the first one. He says, this new way of life involves turning from our sinful passions. That we, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, that this is, this is part of your new way of life. That you are to turn from your sinful passions. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Uh, I'll read the, the other verse a little bit as well. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So the last part, uh, that list of sins there, is, is pretty universal. A thousand years ago, or today, these, these things have been bad news. They're, they're always bad news. But they did have some specific uh, connections to the culture of the time. So in the Greco-Roman world, feasting was a way of life. I mean, it was just something you did all, all the time. Drunken feasts, sexual debauchery was a regular occurrence, something that was tied into your civic pride, your religion, your, your politics. It would be like today, if, if you could imagine every major holiday, uh, Canada Day, uh, St. Patrick's Day, any holiday really, it would, what would happen is that there would be a state-sponsored party with all morality out the window. That was just the, kind of the way of living. That was the lifestyle that people were accustomed to. And the people that Peter is speaking to in the church would have been the Gentiles, 
So not, not from a Jewish background, but from a Gentile, Greek, Roman background, and they'd come to faith. They were Christians now. And Peter's speaking to them, and he's saying, look, look, this, this pattern of sinfulness, of sinful passions, it has to stop. Okay, haven't you spent enough time on those kinds of sinful passions? Now you have to make a change. Now is time to live for the will of God. So notice, he's not giving them options here. He's not, you know, he's not saying, look, this is something that you, you could do or maybe should do. He's saying, this, this is what it means to live like a Christian. You need to turn and begin to swim against the, the current of culture. You need to begin to, to live differently. And in fact, this is really what Christian repentance is all about, isn't it? To truly repent as a, as a Christian, it doesn't just mean that you say sorry for your sin. It means that you actually turn from your sin. You turn and go in a, in a different direction. Of course, if, if you've tried to do that, like if you've tried to live a Christian life, you know that that's difficult to do with consistency. The temptations of the world are very enticing, especially when sin is not only permitted, but endorsed. So just think of it for those early, um, those early believers living in that culture that the feasts would have continued. They would have heard the music every, every month or however often they, they went on. They would have seen their neighbors, their friends coming by the house and we're going... The party started. What do you, aren't you coming? Come on, let's go. The, the feast is there. The, the food is ready. Come on, let's, let's go and have a good time. The challenge remained for them, and I would say to you that that challenge has not gone away for us. We still struggle to turn completely from our sinful passions. Now you, might, you might think that you know, things are more civilized now. There's, there's no state-sponsored feasts like that, no kind of state-sponsored debauchery like that, but sexual sin and alcohol abuse is, is probably more readily available now than it was back then. I mean, if you think about it, right, our, our devices brimming with sensuality. Everything is available to our eyes. Even 20 years ago, things were, were kept in, in rooms and video stores. It was difficult to access, but now pornography is available for anyone who would like to click on it. Liquor stores boast about being open all the time. I've seen the signs. 365 days a year, you can get it ordered to your door. At any time that you want alcohol, you can get it. Everything that's on this list is readily available to us. And so Peter's words are just as applicable to us. Look at verse 3 again. He says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So let me ask, is that your conviction as a Christian? Like, would you, would you agree that the time for sinful passions is over? Or have you left that door propped open a little bit? Just waiting for the for the right kind of temptation to take you down that road again, the road of sin over and over and over again. See, the problem with that road is that every time we turn back to our sinful passions, we allow the corruption of sin to blind us all over again. And, and the, the challenge of it is that it happens usually slowly, kind of almost imperceptibly. We don't, we don't realize that we're being enticed and, and giving into temptation. See, sin... 
it deceives us into thinking that there is greater pleasure found in the darkness. And it entices us in such a way that we allow a little bit of darkness into our life. And over the course of, of weeks or months or years, it, it takes over our life. But the truth is that this is always a case of diminishing returns when we're talking about sin. Just as an example, to sort of take some of the examples that we, we have here. Uh, a number of studies have shown that those who look at pornography regularly aren't gratified by the same kinds of images over and over and over again. They always need more, something more explicit, more explicit imagery, more explicit pornography to get the same level of, of satisfaction, of gratification. I heard an interview once uh, with a former wrestler who said that his sex life had been ruined because of his parting days when he was young, because of his, his sexual escapades. He was no longer simply able to enjoy a regular relationship. See, the sad irony is that engaging in sexual sin actually hinders our ability to enjoy sex. And it's the same thing with alcohol. It, it promises to make things better. The, the more, the better. But no one's life has ever gotten better by indulging in drunkenness. It only gets worse. It only leaves us with things that we regret, relationships broken, everything a mess in our lives. And that's always the way it is with sin. It promises satisfaction, but delivers disappointment and destruction. And the Bible is really clear about this. Like over and over again, it's trying to appeal to us, convince us of something that we don't want to believe. We don't want to see the truth of it. Look here at Proverbs 5, verses 3 and 6. This is again speaking about sexual immorality. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. That, that's hell. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. That last line, I think, is really insightful. Her ways wander and she does not know it. It, it makes clear that those engaging in sinful passions don't even know what path they're on. Like in our sin, we think that we're on a path that leads to a life of pleasure and joy and satisfaction, but it's only leading to, to bitterness and destruction and death. And we can't, we can't even tell the difference. We're so blinded. So what Peter is saying here is, look, aren't you done with all of that? Like, haven't you wasted enough time living for passions that leave you empty? These aren't just questions for the church back then. They're not like theoretical, rhetorical questions that we're just supposed to sort of ponder in a general way. We're actually supposed to be asking ourselves these kinds of questions. This is a, an invitation to examine our hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to examine those areas of our lives looking, looking for the darkness because the reality is that we're very good at ignoring it. We're very good at, at at feeling that twinge of our conscience and then just quickly moving on to something else. So, so might I encourage you not, not just to move on. If, you, if, you're, if you're feeling that twinge, if you know there's some areas of your life, some areas of your thought life that you need to deal with, don't just go home and watch Olympics. Okay, D deal with it. And the way to deal with it is, is to actually pause. Ask the Spirit of God to bring clarity to your mind, to bring conviction to your heart, and then ask for the strength and the courage to bring it into the light. 
That's the only way you're gonna, you're gonna deal with it. It's the only way any of us can deal with sin, to actually see it for what it is, is confess it, to, to know I'm forgiven. Praise Jesus. He died for this sin. This isn't gonna condemn me. I need to bring it to light and then confess it to someone in our lives so that we're not trying to deal with it on our own. This is gonna be hard. It's not easy. But remember, remember that's part of how you know that your heart is really changed, that you're willing to do these difficult things, to suffer in a sense, to live in this way, to, to, to begin thinking in the way of Jesus and to begin living in the way of Jesus. So that's the first thing that Peter says. We need to actually turn from our sinful passions. The second mark, though, of this new way of living is that we are ready for opposition. He tells us to be ready for opposition. Look at verses four and five. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here the they uh, are the unbelievers. The, the unbelievers, and they are surprised because of the change in the life of, of a new Christian in their life, uh, a friend, a coworker, a family member, and they don't like the change. And so they're, they're, they're pushing back, and that's always what happens. Often what happens is that when there's this kind of change, dramatic change in someone's life, there's pushback. I was talking uh, about this kind of thing uh, with Dana Cairns. Dana's uh, part of our church, helps to lead in our youth ministry, uh, she came to faith uh, right when we were planting Tri-City Church. Uh, someone invited her, she heard the gospel, she was baptized here. Uh, she was a young adult at the time, she's still a young adult, but uh, a few different times she's told me about the, the challenge of making that change and that her friends were very confused about what was going on because they would, they would invite her to do the same kinds of things she had done before. Let, 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 it's Friday night. Let's go out, let's go to the club, let's go dancing and, and drinking and partying, Let, let's go. And, and Dana was saying, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Oh, we can go next weekend, let's go next weekend. No, I, no, I, I don't want to do that ever again, actually. I met Jesus and, and things have changed. And, and they were confused. They, what do you mean things have changed? And, and the thing of it is that confusion can very often lead to opposition. And that definitely was what was happening in the time of Peter. Because remember, this sinful lifestyle that Peter was describing, uh, he wasn't just talking about like a night on the town, like a guy's night. They were talking about state-sanctioned feasts that were, that were there because they thought it would appease the gods. So, so think of it, um, to not participate in these kinds of feasts, I mean, that was, that was like you were disloyal to your city or to the emperor. I mean, they would come and say, what, what are you doing I mean, we have to go and feast. We have to appease the gods. Don't you want our crops to succeed? Don't you want our city to thrive? What's wrong? Don't you care about us anymore? Aren't you loyal to the emperor? I mean, these kind of questions seem strange, right? To think that people would, would think that way. But, but there are similar questions like that for us today as Christians. Aren't you going to come out drinking after the meeting? What, what, what do you mean you're not coming? Don't, we have to show the clients a good time. You have to take them anywhere they want to go and do whatever they, they want to do. We need to make this sale, don't you? I thought you were a team player. I thought you wanted the company to succeed. I thought you were my friend. It's my birthday party. Why, aren't, why won't you come with us? Ever since you've become a Christian, you're just, you never want to do anything. You never want to hang out. You, you think you're better than us now, right? You think you're perfect. See, very quickly, 
the confusion can turn to opposition. People can get very antagonistic very quickly. In fact, Peter uses the word malign uh, in, our, in our verses here, which is a very strong word. It means to wish evil on someone, to wish harm on someone. And sadly, some of you know firsthand the pain that comes from being rejected or attacked by those who are close to you simply because of your faith. So what's the answer? Like, like what should we do if this is what's going on? Well, part of the answer that, that Peter gives is simply to expect this kind of response. To not be surprised by it. In fact, that's the language he uses uh, a little later on in verse 12. We're going to get here in a couple weeks. But here, here's what he says. He says, Beloved Christian, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, to the unbelievers in our life, they may be surprised when we reject sin, but we shouldn't be surprised when they reject us. If we're going to be thinking like Jesus, then we should expect this kind of thing. Because this is exactly what Jesus told us to expect. Uh, look, look here in John 15. This is when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, telling them what it's going to be like for them. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Basically saying, look, you, you can't expect to follow me and be loved by the world. Because the people in your lives, the, even those who are close to you, they're going to they're gonna feel judged. When, when, you, when you go in a different direction, when you begin to live differently than them, even though we're going to do what you can to try to show them you still love them, still want to be friends. Just the very fact that you're doing something different, rejecting their way of life, is going to rub them the wrong way. I heard, I heard kind of a funny story about this. Um, true story. Uh, it's about a pro golfer who had a chance to play around with Billy Graham. Billy Graham, great evangelist. And uh, so after the round, uh, his, his friend came up to him and said, hey, how was how was?" the round. And the golfer was, he was irritated. He, he was very kind of agitated. And he said, said to his friend, look, I don't need Billy Graham ramming religion down my throat on the golf course. And he stormed off. His friend was like, Ooh, okay. So we followed him to the practice tee, sat down. The pro golfer was taking a few swings. And then he said, um, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And the golfer sighed. And he said, no. He said, he didn't even talk about religion. It's just, uh, I just had a really bad round. <laughs> and that's sometimes the reaction. Sometimes it's, it's not even about us, but what we should expect. Because listen, we are, we are visitors here. If you're a believer, right? This isn't, this isn't your home. This isn't where we belong. There's going to be hostility towards us simply because we are going to live differently. No matter how loving we, we try to be, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be strong opposition, sometimes very personal, very violent, very intense. Peter's saying this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't dissuade us from being faithful. And he gives us the ultimate comfort, which is to know that, that in the end, justice will be served. Verse 5 again says this, but they will, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What this means is that, that every attack, every insult, every, every assault of any kind, that there's an answer to it. 
that we, we don't need to be concerned about justice. We don't need to be worried and plagued by a sense of injustice and, and wanting to get back at those who are treating us this way. This truth doesn't make us vindictive or, or pleased that there would be a final judgment for those in our lives. What it does is it frees us up from the cycle of hatred. It enables us to be gracious, to be forgiving, to be, to be kind, even to those who oppose us. That's, that's the dynamic you see in the early church, right? For all the opposition of the early church, the apostles, the deacons there, they responded with grace. I mean, think of Stephen, right? Stephen famously stoned for proclaiming the gospel. And yet here's his response, Acts 7, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, so finding the biggest rocks they could, throwing them at his head to kill him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he, he fell asleep. He died. So here's the, here's the question for us this morning. Are we, are we ready to be opposed by those around us because of our faith? Like, are we, are we even expecting it? Or, or does it catch us off guard all the time? Does it irritate us? Does it distract us from the things that, that God has for us? Are we incredibly discouraged because of the, the opposition? See, what Peter's saying here is that it's, it's possible for us to endure this kind of suffering with grace and with perseverance if we arm ourselves with the way of thinking like Jesus, ready to, to bless and pray for those who persecute us, and, and if we appeal to the power of God. That's our, that's our third point. So we're to turn from our passions. We're to be ready for opposition. And the third thing we need to do to make this all work is we need to live in the spirit. We need to live in the spirit. Here's our sixth and final verse. For this is why, Peter writes, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, the first line uh, is a little confusing. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Uh, people tend to say, why would you preach the gospel to, to people who are dead? And they try to figure out what, what exactly this means. But it's pretty clear if you look at the verb tenses. Peter's saying here that, look, there's a gospel that was preached to people when they were alive, but now they're dead. So look again, it, it reads this way. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And the reason that Peter is saying this is because there was criticism against the church. Those who were opposing the church, one of the things they would say is, look, honestly, what, what is the point of following Jesus? I mean, clearly Christians are not able to do anything fun while they're alive and then they die like everyone else. So why, why even bother with this? And Peter responds to them and says, you're, sorry, you're missing the point. I mean, yes, yes, our bodies die. He says, yes, we're judged in the flesh is the way he says it. But we're alive in the spirit. He's saying that's, that's not the end. That this, this physical life you see, that's not all we have. We, have. we have a different kind of life, a spiritual life, an eternal life, a righteous life, an abundant life. And Peter's saying, Christian brothers and sisters, this is worth it. That this is more than worth it. In fact, this is the whole reason that the gospel is preached. 
That, that human beings who are no longer, uh, are, would be no longer condemned in the flesh, but would be alive spiritually. That is the Christian hope. And that now characterizes how we live and why we live. To be alive spiritually means to live in the spirit. That everything in our lives, every good thing happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in Ephesians 2. Right? The plight of humanity. We are, we are dead in our sin. I mean, we look alive physically, but we're dead in our sin. And then someone tells us the gospel. Someone explains to us the things that we need to hear. And the spirit awakens us spiritually. Uh, the Bible uses language like our, like our eyes being opened, like a heart, a flesh that's actually alive, beats in our chest, not physically, but spiritually for the first time. From that newness of life, then we respond in faith and repentance. And then we live our lives by the Spirit. And then, yes, our bodies die. Everyone's, everyone's bodies die except for Enoch, right? He's the only one. Everyone else, we're going to die. But that's not the end. Peter's saying, we, we, we live in the spirit. We continue to live in the spirit. We're at once with Jesus in heaven, still spiritually alive, waiting for the day when our bodies will be resurrected just like Jesus and, and we will live forever for eternity. Peter's saying, that's our hope. That, that, that's what excites us. That what, that's what comforts us. All of that is absolutely true. But here's the question. If you believe that is true, if that is your hope, that you will continue to live spiritually by the, by the power of the Spirit because of all that Jesus has done on the cross. The Spirit now applies all that to us. If that is true, is it affecting the way you live now? Because that's a future hope. It's coming up. But is it affecting the way you live now? Remember what Thomas Schreiner said. Remember that quote. I'll put it up again. He said, the commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. Is your life different? Are our lives as the church different from the rest of the community, from the rest of our city? Can people see a difference in us? See, sadly, it's, it's very common for those who profess a hope of spiritual life when they die to have a life while they live that's dead spiritually. There's no difference. I mean, sure, maybe they go to church, maybe they own a Bible, but there's no, there's no real vibrancy, no real difference. This is what Peter's concerned about. This is what this whole passage is about. Look back at verses one and two. He says, arm yourself. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Why? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, what he's saying is for the rest of your life, while you're in the flesh, while you're here on this earth, how are you going to live? How are you going to live for the will of God? And you might say, well, what, what, is, what does that mean? I've never, you know, what exactly does that mean to live for the will of God? It means, it means that we live the way that Jesus lived. That we do the things that, that God wants us to do. That we're committed to glorifying Jesus at every opportunity. That we're eager to share the gospel with those who are dead in their sins. That we're ready to suffer at the hands of those who oppose us. All of these difficult things. And all of these possible. Because we have the power of the spirit within us. Because we're, we're actually alive spiritually. I mean, if we are alive spiritually, the Holy Spirit is in us. And he is God. He is full of glory. He's full of power. He's full of life. 
right? Which means we have, we have everything that we need to live lives that are very different from the dying, decaying, corrupt life of the world. Out there, we can live lives of purity, of sacrifice, of suffering, of joy in all circumstances, of, of peace. I mean, genuinely vibrant, God-glorifying lives. We can step out in faith for the sake of the gospel. But again, the, the question is, is, is that how we're actually living? James Chalmers was a man who lived, who lived this way. James Chalmers was born in Scotland in 1841. Here he is. He's a little rough around the edges, uh, but I think you're going to like him. J- James uh, was born to Christian parents. His dad was a stonemason. Uh, when he was 13 years old, a missionary came to his little village in Scotland and told stories about his missionary journeys. This missionary had been a missionary in Fiji, and he told stories about bringing the gospel to the cannibal tribes there in Fiji, and this just captivated James. On the way home from that meeting, he stopped and he prayed, and he prayed that God, he said, God, would you make me, would you help me to be a missionary to the cannibal tribes in the South Pacific? That's what he wanted to do. But James was 13 years old. And, uh, you know, sometimes in our teen years, uh, we get less enthusiastic about the things of God. That's what happened with James. By the time he graduated uh, from high school, uh, he, got, he got a good job. He got a job in a lawyer's office, and he began to live a normal, good life. Had a good job. He would go make trouble with his friends on the weekend, not too much trouble. Uh, if, you, if you knew him at the time, in the village where he was, you would say, there's a, there's a good boy, James, doing what he should do. And yet his life was not on the path that God ultimately wanted him to be on. And it changed dramatically when someone came to a friend of his, came and gave him a Bible. He probably had a Bible before, but gave him a new Bible and said, look, there's a revival meeting happening tomorrow. I want you to come. I think you need to hear what what the guy's going to say. And at that meeting, God moved in a powerful way. He, He came to faith again. He remembered the faith of his youth. He went to the pastor, said, I... I need Jesus, praise God, I need Jesus. And then almost immediately he remembered what he had prayed, that he wanted to go and be a missionary. And so that's what he set out to do. For the next many years, he trained. He trained, read the Bible, got ready to be a missionary to the South Pacific, uh, met a girl, married her. She also thankfully wanted to go with him. And uh, so they left. Uh, It was years later, like six years before they actually left to go down to the South Pacific. And then some years after that, that he finally arrived on an island the island of New Guinea. And there were cannibal tribes there. As soon as they arrived, they saw people wearing human jawbones as necklaces, human skulls as ornaments. Uh, The very first night, they surrounded his hut and they wanted weapons. And James stood his ground. He said, look, you can kill us. You're not gonna find any weapons here. So they let him be. And and he began to build a relationship with the people of the island. That was, that was 1867. By 1882, 15 years later, there was a dramatic change in the culture, in the people. Many people had come to faith. Uh, no one was practicing cannibalism anymore. Thankfully, they even built a church in the community. I mean, James was very pleased with the work that God had done through him, even though it was hard. He'd, he'd lost his first wife. He went back to Scotland, married another wife. She also passed away, not from the cannibals, just from other things. <laughs> And so it was difficult work, and yet it was, it was satisfying work. But at the age of 59, uh, James wasn't fully satisfied. He, he wanted more and more people to know the hope of the gospel. So he and another missionary, they went to some of the other islands. They kept going and, and finding other tribes that hadn't heard the gospel. 
And so one of these islands was called Garibari Island. And uh, they went ashore and they went into a hut. And instead of being welcomed, though, they were attacked. They were attacked and they were killed and they were eaten by the tribe. That's what happened to James. Now just think about if you knew James. Like think about the response when he wanted to leave. Just imagine for a minute, you're in Scotland, you know this kid, you, you love him, and, he, and he's telling you, I want to I wanna go on missions. I want to go minister to the, the cannibal tribes. Think of the response he must have got from a lot of people. Where do you want to go? What? To people, they eat people. That's who you want to go and talk to? Why there? There's tons of other people that would want to know the gospel. I mean, look, you've got a good life here. Why are you going there? And imagine then when they heard the news of what had happened. I don't think anyone would have said it, but some people would have thought it. I knew it was going to happen. This kid, this kid wasted his life. But do you think James thought that? I mean, we, we know, I know the answer. We have his journals. He thanked the Lord for the opportunity to minister to these people. And there is a gospel legacy in Papua New Guinea because of him. I had friends who were missionaries in Papua New Guinea when I was a teenager. They continued that work uh, from what he started. There are churches thriving there because of, because of his work. Look, look, I tell the story obviously to show what kind of a life we are called to live. But I think when we hear these kinds of stories, I mean, we, if you're a Christian, you praise God. Praise God for the James Chalmers of the world that go out and take these steps. Amazing. But we think to ourselves, I could never do anything like that. I'm nervous about talking to my neighbor about Christmas Eve service. I'm not going to go too far out of my comfort zone. But here's what we forget. We forget that the same spirit that was at work in James Chalmers' life is in us. The spirit of God. Same power. Same, same enlivening. Same leading. That, that it's never a question of ability. It's never a question of strength or power. All of that is there. That's God's business. The question for us is our willingness. Are we interested? Are we eager to see what God might do with us? If we're actually open to the leading of the spirit. Do we actually want to live lives that are different? Or are we comfortable with a life settled in the sinful passions of the world, the comforts of the world? See, it seems overwhelming when you hear things like this, when you read things like this, but it's really not. It begins in the same way it did with James Chalmers, with prayer. With prayer and just the inkling of a desire to go and do what God is calling us to do. It's, it's a movement of the Spirit of God within us as an as individual and as a community that we would seek to, to live in such a way that we think in the way of Jesus and live in the way of Jesus so that more and more people would come to, to know Jesus, that we would have the joy, the pleasure of, of suffering even so that more people would know his name, would know the hope of Christ and would also be alive in the Spirit. So look, I don't know, I don't know what God is doing in your life but I know what God has called us to as a church. And that is to be a people who are excited about this, this kind of way of life, this kind of way of thinking, this kind of way of living. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna pray that we would be open to the leading of the spirit in this way and that we would take steps, whatever that looks like, tomorrow, the next day, the next week, small little steps, big steps in the right direction. Let me pray that for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that that you did everything necessary 
for us to have hope in this life and in the life to come. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that your way of living, though, though contrary to everything the world says is, is good and right and, and joyful, it, it's, it's so much better. And, and it, it reveals the, the lie of sin and it defeats sin. And so I pray for us as a people, for those who are Christians here, I pray that we would be, we would be interested in, eager to, to live in the same way. Help us, please, Lord Jesus. Help us to turn from our, from our sinful passions that, that entangle us, that we allow to entangle us still. Convict us, please, Holy Spirit. Give us the strength to confess that. I pray that we wouldn't be turned off by opposition from those in our lives. And I pray truly that we would live in the Spirit. Please, Holy Spirit, Help us, over, help us to overcome our fears, to overcome our hesitancies, and to find great peace in, in going where you lead, trusting that it, it will be best for us and best for the people in our lives. And I pray that there would be great glory for you, for, for this community, and for our church as we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.